History Nerds United. Hello, nerds. Welcome to the History Nerds United podcast. I'm your head nerd, Brendan. Today we have author Nell McShane Wolfhart and her book, The Great Stewardess Rebellion. It's a fantastic book. You hear Great Stewardess Rebellion. If you're one of those people who's like, I don't want to read about women's issues. I'm hearing enough about it. This book is amazing. There are ridiculous parts. There are serious parts. There are absolutely hilarious parts and everything in between. It's a great book. Highly recommended for anyone. And if you're not sold on it yet, well, then Nell and I are going to talk to you more about it and you will be sold on it. So let me shut up. Let's get to it. Nell McShane Wolfhart. All right, welcoming to the podcast, Nell McShane Wolfhart. Nell, thank you so much for coming on. I'm happy to be here, Brendan. Thanks for having me. So we're going to talk about your absolutely fantastic book and fantastically titled book, The Great Stewardess Rebellion. But first, to just say that you wrote a book is, I think, missing a lot of what you do because you are a journalist by trade. And just in my research, if you could clear this up, your bio, just like a lot of journalists say, here's the 27 different places I've written for. Is that something where... You know, you work somewhere and then you go to the next place and you just kind of move around or could you write something here and write something there simultaneously and just kind of be doing it all at once? Well, I was a freelance travel journalist for about 15 years, so I was never employed anywhere, actually. <laughs> My life was just pitching ideas, going to new places, pitching more ideas to different, you know, to different publications. So when you've been doing that for a long time, you just tend to sort of stack up the different magazines and websites and newspapers, um, and you end up with like a very wide-ranging portfolio. Now, freelance travel journalist, I feel like there's a billion people who want that to be their job. How did you get into it? Uh, there are a billion people who want that to be their job. And I hate to disillusion them, but it's actually a very difficult and very poorly paid job. I can talk about that a little more, but I got into it because I've been living abroad since I was 18 in like various countries. So more than 20 years. And it's, you know, it always seemed glamorous to me as well. And, you know, writing is just something that I'm naturally good at it. So it became like a very good fit. I think I was living in Vietnam when I first started pitching stories and working for like an expat rag out there. And it just grew from there. But I get people telling me all the time, like, oh, that was my dream job. I wish I had that job. And I just want to put it out there that it is really, really, really tough. Like you have to hustle constantly from, from concept of idea to actually getting paid could be a full year you know, the rates keep going down, travel magazines keep closing their doors, and then all those editors go freelance. <laughs> so the jobs just get fewer and fewer. I don't do it anymore because I'm kind of out of that game. The pandemic and writing the book sort of changed my career path a little bit, but it's really hard. It's great in some ways, but it, it's a slog. And now you're based on a Uruguay right now, right? Yes, I live in Montevideo, the capital. Now, is that you ended up there because that was your favorite place so far or you just decided on it or you're still traveling all over the place anyway? Good question. I'm actually in Uruguay specifically because my partner very randomly got a job there. So we've been there about eight years so far. And of course, while I was still doing travel journalism, it was like, you know, perfect. I could go to Argentina and Brazil and Colombia and write stories from all of those places um, while coming back to a country that is like, like small, secular pretty lefty, all the things that I like. <laughs> now, I've never been. Would you, do you highly recommend a vacation down there? If you want to travel and you love doing things and seeing things and going places, 
do not come to Uruguay. <laughs> if you want a vacation and you want to just lie on a beautiful beach and then go eat steak and drink good wine and watch the cows wander by, definitely come to Uruguay. But I would say there's almost no like unmissable sites. It's a really small place. People are super nice. The steak and wine are incredible. The beaches are beautiful, but it's not full of like, you know, cultural attractions or mountains to climb or anything like that. I mean, you had me at stake. I think you've sold me. That's not a problem at all. So you wrote a lot for journalism. Can I ask this? Do you have a favorite piece or is that like asking which one's your favorite child? Even though we know that there's usually an answer, you're just not supposed to say it out loud. Well, the favorite, my favorite job that I ever had, my favorite gig was when I had a column in the New York Times travel section and I got to interview celebrities about what they took in their carry-on luggage. So it was just sort of like a what's your handbag kind of, you know, fluff pieces, but so much fun. I got to interview famous people and get very nosy about all the stuff they took with them. So that was definitely like a top tier gig. But I think my best ever travel article was maybe taking a motorcycle trip through the Seven Lakes region of Argentina with a bunch of friends. It was just absolutely beautiful. And it was fun learning how to ride a motorbike. And it was just the sort of like experiential travel, I guess, that people are really looking for these days. So that was an especially memorable one. I think we got to jump back to the fact that this does not pay well, listeners. Don't quit your jobs and decide that you can just do this tomorrow. <laughs> because that sounds, I think, pretty glamorous. Well, even just, you know, what's in a celebrity's handbag? Like, it's such a simple premise, but it can run forever just because it it hits Exactly. It was just sort of like an easy win, I think, you know, for the for the paper, because they got these famous names in there. And for me, because it was just like a Q&A, which is every journalist's favorite thing to write, because there's very little writing involved. <laughs> um, and yeah, it was just like, you know, and just kind of being fun and getting to talk to people like, you know, RuPaul or Bill Nye or whomever. It was just like, yeah, really fun. That's why I interview authors. All I have to do is ask questions and let you be the smart one. Right. Well, exactly. <laughs> it's working out so far. All right. Let's talk about The Great Stewardess Rebellion, your fantastic book. And I mentioned this before we started on. I love the title. It does a lot. Like I saw it and I'm like, okay, I know what I'm getting into. I have a general idea and it sounds very serious, but very fun at the same time. But this was a, a team effort to put together that title. Did you go through a lot of them before you settled on it or was it just lightning and there you were? So... Many of them, Brendan. So many titles, so many puns, so many fly girls sort of ideas, so many bad, bad, bad titles. And then, yeah, my editor came up with something along the lines of Stewardess Rebellion. I really wanted the word stewardess in there because, you know, it's a book about, you know, it's a true story about what happened in the 60s and 70s. And, and that's what they were called. And I think that's, you know, part of the lore. And calling it the Great Stewardess Rebellion, I felt like made it sound like an adventure story because that's really what it is. Like there's lots of ups and downs. There's lots of drama. It just feels like, I mean, the whole story as I was learning and researching and interviewing, I was like, this is really like an adventure story. And so I felt like the title kind of reflected that. Well, I think a big word that gets thrown around, especially nowadays, is misogyny, right? You know, there's lots of definitions. What is it? What isn't it? I started reading your book. and many of the women in my life, I went, can you believe they did this? And they all looked back at me and said, yes. And I went, oh, yeah, because I'm a guy. So I wouldn't think about any of this. But I mean, there is. All right, we're going to slow play it because there's just too much. But are you as amazed that I am that there weren't more assaults in airports by stewardesses onto a pilot or somebody during this time? Because it seems like they had plenty of reason to do so. 
I'm not surprised because some of the same things are going on now. And, you know, women are not, you know, j- jumping on and assaulting pilots or, or other men, you know, like, um, obviously we've come a really long way since the, since the things that happened in my book. And that's, some of those are thanks to the women in my book and what they did. But, you know, I'm not surprised that there wasn't more pushback against these like sexist things and the treatment by the pilots and the passengers, uh, you know, from the men to the women, because it's just, when you're fighting the patriarchy, there's just like, it can be a little overwhelming, you know, it's just like, there's too much to do, honestly. I feel like if a lot of sexists nowadays actually read your book, even they would be kind of like, wow, that's kind of messed up. But maybe I'm giving people too much credit. I don't know. Now, how did you even come upon the idea for the book? What made you say that there's, this isn't an article, this is a book? Oh, I love that you made that distinction because I read so many books that I think this should have been an article. <laughs> Agreed. <laughs> um, so many. Yes. Um, I actually, when I, you know, one of the people I interviewed for my New York Times celebrity column was somebody called Adam Conover and he's like a comedian and an actor and he has, he has a new TV show out now, but he had sort of a myth busting TV show out at the time. And he'd done an episode on the golden age of travel. And what we all think about is this like very glamorous mad men, Don Draper cocktails in first class, the idea of like what travel was like in the sixties, you know, the jet age and all this really, really chic and cosmopolitan stuff. And he had done a story that basically talked about how the flip side of that, which was these incredibly sexist regulations that the stewardesses had to put up with that. Like if you looked at what was going on sort of behind the scenes in the cabin, you know, if you got pregnant, they were fired. If they got married, they were fired. If they turned 32, they were fired. And that's not even getting into the appearance stuff. Like you couldn't wear glasses. You couldn't have crooked teeth. You had to weigh, like you had to be very slim and they would weigh you before you got on the plane and they could pull you off the flight if you were a couple pounds over your allowed weight. So he was telling me this story and I said to him, I was like, that sounds like it would make a great book. (laughs) And then I sort of ran away and wrote it. Um, But, you know, I think every journalist, especially freelancers, they're always looking for book ideas. And I have like thought about it and discarded many, many book ideas over the years. And this one, because it was so strong on feminism and labor, which are two things I'm, I'm really interested in. This was the first one I was like, yes, like this is the book. Um, you know, this is the time. And yeah, it worked. It was really fun. You did skip the one really outrageous regulation that shocked me is the girdle check. Now, do me a favor. I am a man... I think I know what is a girdle and how was this used in the regulations? Well, do you know what spanks are? I do know what spanks are. I think everybody knows what spanks are. Girdle was just basically like old fashioned spanks, um, a garment that would suck you in and keep all your bits and pieces in place and make sure they weren't jiggling around. Girdles were part of the uniform. They were absolutely required for women, no matter what size, no matter what shape. They were they are absolutely required. And any stewardess supervisor, any manager, even the pilot could conduct a girdle check at any moment, which basically meant like coming up behind you and sort of flicking their finger against your butt to make sure that you were wearing the girdle. And that was just something like really anyone above a stewardess could do. And they were almost all like higher ranking than the stewardesses. So yeah, that was that was a, a pretty bad workplace condition. Going back to the lack of stabbings, when you talk about all <laughs> the things that you just talk about in the lack of stabbings, I was also shocked to hear about charm school that maybe one of the reasons that there wasn't a lot more problems earlier on is there basically was an indoctrination school. And it was, I mean, I went to a military academy and even I was like, 
damn, they're strict on this stuff. What were the charm schools? How did they run them? Starting in the 60s, every airline started opening up its own stewardess school. You know, stewardess was an extremely aspirational job. Like, it, you know, maybe out of 100 applicants, three would get an interview. Like, it was really hard, a job that was really hard to get. Lots of people wanted it. So the airlines had their pick of, of, of women. And then they created these schools that they would send them to to train them in being a stewardess. So the one that comes up most in my book was called the Charm Farm. That was American Airlines Stewardess School. It was officially called the Stewardess College, but it was called, everyone called it the Charm Farm because they spent six weeks there. They slept in dorms and they learned things like how to serve meals and emergency procedures and how to evacuate an airplane. But most of the time was spent on grooming, you know, how to polish your nails, how to wear your uniform the right way doing your hair, millions and millions and millions of little details like that. That was the main focus of the Charm Farm. And after you graduated from the Charm Farm, after your six weeks, then you were sent off to your base to start working. Can we talk about the irony of around this time, right, a lot of anti-communism sentiment, but one of the big pieces of these schools was make sure you snitch on anybody if you see them doing anything wrong. It was very much if you see something, say something. But the thing you would see would be like somebody having a cigarette in the wrong place or somebody sneaking out to meet her boyfriend, like very minor infractions. But one of the things that, you know, the women I interviewed told me about was that it was so common for them to come back from lunch or from class, come back to their dorm room. And one of their fellow, you know, uh, stewardesses in training would just be gone. All her stuff would be gone. She would have been like disappeared because... She had broken one of these like very, of the many but minor rules that they had at the Charm Farm. How did you decide on the women that you chose to focus on? I mean, especially the first part of the book, we have our our first hero of the book. And she actually snitched on a few people, which I liked because I like when an author picks whoever they're going to focus on, but doesn't hide the warts, right? So she was a little bit of a snitch herself. But how did you decide who got the real focus in each part of the book, as opposed to who's a background character? Well, there are three main women in the book. Two of them are stewardesses, um, Pat Gibbs and Tommy Hutto. And I went with them because they both became union leaders. So the book is not just about how the stewardesses fought back against sexist regulations, you know, in court at, and at the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission and, you know, all the and congressional hearings. It's also about how they... You know, they were unionized and how they basically tried to fight for workplace, better workplace rights through their union and eventually, um, you know, leaving their bigger union and forming their own woman-led union. So Pat and Tommy were both union leaders, even though they had very different approaches. And they are just two of the most compelling and interesting people I've met. They're both real characters, as, as I think anyone who reads the book can attest to. They're both like very interesting individuals. I'm really polar opposites in a lot of ways, but people that I just got an incredible amount of enjoyment and fun out of talking to them. And the third person is Sonia Pressman, who was the first woman attorney in the general counsel's office at the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission and one of the founders of the National Organization for Women. All these women are still alive, by the way. Sonia is 94 and lives in Sarasota. And she also was like an integral part of helping stewardesses get, you know, their equal rights. They weren't quite equal, but make progress towards equal rights. And, you know, those those fights had a wider impact for American working women today. 
the three of them are really interesting because they're three very strong women and you see that throughout. But like you mentioned, too, they they are polar opposites in a lot of different ways. Like they went about getting what they felt was right, but in very, very different ways. When you're doing your research, how many of them were available to you as you were writing? Well, you know, it turns out when you start looking for people who are women who are stewardesses in the 60s and 70s, you find hundreds of them, thousands of them. I mean, it's amazing. Like, you know, when you think about the early 60s, especially, there just weren't that many career options for women, um, at least of a certain class. You know, you could be a teacher, you could be a nurse, you could be a man's secretary, or you could be a stewardess. Like those were kind of it. Um, and it's incredible the amount of women I've met who are in their 70s or 80s who were once a stewardess, an amazing number of them. And so I talked to many, many, many women for this book and men as well. Friends of Pat and Tommy's and relatives. There's just no shortage of material. And for younger listeners too, you listed a bunch of jobs that a woman could have at this time, but I mean, stewardess was top of the list. This was glamour. This was you're flying, you're traveling, you've got the uniform and everything. Like this was one of the best jobs you could possibly have. This is something you come home to your family and friends and say, guess what I am, right? 100%. Hugely aspirational. Um, you know, these women were considered, everyone thought they were so beautiful. They were, you know, cosmopolitan. They could jet set around. Like, it was just a much more glamorous lifestyle than, you know, being a teacher or a nurse or a secretary. Eastern Airlines, which is now defunct, they had an ad, actually, that they ran in magazines for a while. And it was just a photo of 19 conventionally attractive, slim, young, white women looking sort of depressed. And the title of the ad was Presenting the Losers. And the, basically the point of the ad is to say, like, look at all these wonderful women that we turned them down for the job of stewardess. So, you know, like the one that we did hire, she's like really exceptional. Um, and just like everything that they did helped to convince not just the passengers, but also the applicants that this was like, you know, a top tier job, extremely, extremely exclusive. Thank you for bringing up the ads. They are sprinkled throughout the book. And seem to get more outrageous as you go along because there are basically two different ads is our stewardesses are hot or our stewardesses might have sex with you. That was basically all of the ads was one or the other. Or did I miss some? Well, I feel like the first round of ads, which is mo are mostly from the 60s, was much more like our stewardesses are here to take care of your every need but in sort of a mothering kind of way. Like she'll bring you a cool pillow and an ice drink and she'll ask you how your day was. Tons of ads were about, it was all targeted at male business travelers, which is probably still true today. Um, but it was all about men, tired men in suits getting on the plane. And then this young 19 year old woman would come and bring him a blanket and have a conversation with him if he wanted, light his cigarette, like, but in a way that was sort of nurturing and comforting and, you know, supposedly very like individualized treatment. And then in the seventies, there's this massive swing towards selling sex and the ads get like really lewd and the uniforms get really tiny and the ads are all about selling sex and this attractive stewardess who's there to, to service your every need and kind of <laughs> goes downhill from there. As many problems as we have, we have come a long way. When you look at an ad and say, wow, nobody would sign off on that today. At least we hope. But why did you pick this time period? Is, is this something that it happened in this time period because it had to? Did it have more to do with the, the women who pushed this forward? Or was it a little bit of both things coming together? Well, the time period is relevant, I think, because it was the things happening outside 
you know, in the greater scheme of things that really fed the movement and fed the momentum. So the women's movement, obviously, and the labor movement, you know, this was like a real heyday of the labor movement. And those two things kind of spurred the women to take action. You know, they could see all around them that like women were making their way up the career ladder, that people were pushing back on sexism, that, you know, unions made of male workers were getting like, you know, the things that they needed at the bargaining table. And yet in the airline cabin, it was sort of a time warp. Like they were treated like girls. They were called girls. They were treated as disposable, you know, flying waitresses. Um, even the unions that represented them didn't take their demands seriously. But I think it was those outside forces, like that maelstrom of, you know, feminism and, and labor excitement that like really forced the issue. And of course, like these particular women who were, really determined to make change and just could not suffer injustice. So I think it was a, you know, a culmination of all those factors. Something else you point out too, now we know them as flight attendants, of course, but you would stewardesses back in the day and you point this out, the ads are about sex and mothering you and all of that stuff. We completely forget that their function is not just to serve you drinks, but that if stuff goes down, they're in charge there. If the plane hasn't just completely crashed and you're all dead and something's gone wrong, they're the ones that are going to get you out of there. And it looks like that never comes up in ads. It never comes up in anywhere. It's just a completely forgotten aspect of this job. It definitely doesn't come up in ads because the airlines, as you may have noticed, never talk about safety because they don't want to introduce the idea. You know, people are scared of flying. They don't want to introduce the idea that an airline flying an airplane might not be 100% safe. So airlines tend to avoid the safety, you know, even to the idea of discussing safety. They don't, they don't mention it, you know, at all. But for absolutely for these women, and this, this is absolutely true today, is like they're there to make sure that everyone who gets on the plane gets off the plane, you know, in one piece. Um, but when it comes to things like, you know, the uniforms they had to wear, like Southwest Airlines at one point had a uniform that was orange hot pants and white lace up go-go boots. And you can imagine that if you're standing in front of a plane full of people trying to tell them like where the exits are and you know what they should do in case of an emergency and you're wearing this sort of ludicrous uniform, people might be inclined to take you less seriously. So the airlines were sort of colluding in the idea that they weren't there for safety. I mean, multiple references to they got new uniforms and then they started to see if they could put something in the overhead bin and not show off their ass, basically. Yes. Um, and there's so many airline ads and photos from that era, which are like the stewardess reaching up to get something over her head bin and the man sort of swiveling his neck around to try and look up her skirt. It's almost a cliche how many photos you see of something like that. It's pretty grim. <laughs> Did we cover it yet? Or was there anything else that you found more outrageous in your research? What is the most ridiculous thing you found? And even you were kind of like, come on, man. I think the thing that I was most shocked by was that a few airlines at one point or another in the 70s had a requirement that when passengers got off the plane, the stewardess had to kiss them goodbye on the cheek. And I arrived at that and I could not believe it. And of course, you know, lots of the men, they were getting off the plane, they would like swivel their head around and try and catch the woman on the lips. Um, I even have a photo of Pat Gibbs, who's, you know, kind of one of the, the heroes of my book, being kissed by a passenger on the plane. And you know, the photo is so disturbing because he's kissing her full on the mouth and, she, you know, she's just standing there rigid with her arms at her side. But this was an actual airline requirement for quite a while that they kiss the passengers departing the plane. Pat really, to me, is 
So interesting because she seems to straddle both sides of it, right? Is that she's a rule follower in a lot of ways. And yet when she sees something that she thinks is wrong, she would go right after it. I mean, it's also going to be kind of hard to write for that person just because you have these wild swings in what it looks like their personality is, even though it's all part of one person. Did you find that difficult or was it just easy to just lay it out? Well, I think I think it's what really makes the story come to life, you know, is that it's not just about the evolution of the workplace conditions of stewardesses, which I mean, I'm interested in that, but not everyone might be interested in that. But it's also a very personal story about these women and how they evolve. Like they go through an incredible amount of changes. They go through real personal journeys. Like they really change over the course of the book as they sort of fight unfairness and injustice and learn to stand up for themselves. And, you know, along the way, make change for all working women. And Pat Gibbs, I think, is a really interesting person because when she was 19 and she went to the charm farm, you know, she was a rule follower, as you said. She was a small town girl. Her only ambition in life was to be an American Airlines stewardess supervisor. Like, that was her crowning ambition. And she was going to follow every rule and do everything that was required to get there. But it was the, the conditions of the job, the fact that, you know, she could be getting, she could be written up by her boss for failing to wear her gloves one time. White gloves were part of the uniform for a while. And she took them off once on a bus in 90 degree heat and somebody wrote her up. Um, like, you know, a disciplinary infraction for three days. And enough of those things happened that those, they, I mean, they radicalized her. They turned her, the working conditions of the job and the sexist treatment of the job turned her from someone who would have been perfectly happy to spend her life as a stewardess supervisor turned her into this militant labor leader who ended up like leading thousands of stewardesses out of the transport workers union and into their own independent woman led union. You know, it's just like this incredible story of how we can just, you know, go along thinking everything is totally fine and we can just plod along on our paths in life until circumstances force us to change. And I think with Pat, like they really changed her, you know, and, and she became, you know, a totally different kind of person. Her story is, I don't want to give too much of it away because it's really fun seeing it, but it starts off with what a lot of people would understand. She wants to get the hell away from her home. Like she wants to get out and do something. And then there are things that she does herself. And then there are things that seem to kind of happen to her by mistake or, you know, when she wasn't there or when she didn't tell people to do things for her and they just did it. But like her story has a little bit of everything in it. And I don't want to short shrift anybody else in the book because it's great. But I, I just found Pat really interesting and very easy to kind of connect with. Did you have that same feeling or did you have the same feeling for all the characters that you could connect with all of them or did one stick out to you more than others? I adore them all. I have to say, like, they're such interesting and unique people and very funny and extremely compelling. And like these people, you know, they've been through the wars. You know, they really came through like an incredibly sexist and difficult period. They fought for their rights. I mean, they're the same women who you know, were out there helping their colleagues get, you know, clandestine abortions. Um, you know, they saw Roe versus Wade and now they're watching all those rights that they fought for crumble away. They have really been through it, these women, and they're still standing tall. And I, I adore each and every one of them. Now, the book is doing fantastic. You also got an endorsement from Gloria Steinem. I mean, as far as writing a book ostensibly about women's rights, how did that one feel? That's got to feel like getting the Pulitzer or something like that, right? You know, I got to meet Gloria Steinem. I got to, she wrote me a blurb for the book, which I was, of course, over the moon about because Gloria is in the book. You know, she's actually an integral part of the stewardess's story 
because she was one of the people, there's a whole section of the book that talks about this amazing 1970s group in New York called Stewardesses for Women's Rights, which I won't get into too much now, but it's, it's really fun and, and very much of the time. But Gloria Steinem was this huge supporter of the stewardesses. She backed all their efforts to like fight for their rights in the workplace. She came to their meetings. She came to their conventions. Like there's not a stewardess out there who doesn't love Gloria Steinem uh, for what she did for them. And she was like a great, you know, public speaker. She was a great mouthpiece for their, for their issues. They told me many stories about her. She's in the book. And I reached out to her for a blurb, which she gave me. And then I was invited to come to her house and have a chat with her about the book and about stewardesses. And it was, it was really like a top 10 life moment, you know? When do we think the Netflix miniseries is going to film? And second question, <laughs> can I play a non-creepy pilot? I, I don't have to have any lines. I can be in the background. But every time I read a book that I think can be something else, I always like to ask if I can have a spot on the roster. Um, my boyfriend has already said requested that he gets to play a pilot in the adaptation. So maybe you guys can be co-pilots. <laughs> yeah, I'll be a co-pilot. I'm cool. He can be the main pilot. I'll be the co-pilot. It's fine. <laughs> <laughs> yes, you might have to, you might have to just like uh, shave off the beard, get a real seventies mustache going. That might be part of it. I think my girlfriend will be very upset, but I'll do it. I'll, I'll, fine. <laughs> I know there was, and I think I, I think they called it Pan Am, but there was a few years ago they tried to do this, and I honestly think it failed because it didn't have the name The Great Stewardess Rebellion. Otherwise, I think it would have gotten a bunch of seasons. <laughs> Oh my God. Thank you. Um, yeah, I, I, I mean, I would love it to be adapted into, into any kind of TV show or film. I mean, I think the story is, is interesting. It's like, as just like a, you know, as a story, as like a drama. Um, and then there's this sort of wider impact of what their actions had on working conditions for women that I think is really important. And yeah, I think the characters are compelling and I would just love more people to know about, about these, about these fights that they had, about the things that they went through and, I think there's also a certain, um, you know, maybe it's an age thing, but like I'm 42 and I feel like I have a very good grasp of, you know, feminism, second wave feminism. I know a lot about this stuff, but I feel often that there are like women who are maybe 20 years younger than me. And, you know, they don't, they don't know a lot of these stories. They don't know like that you couldn't even get a credit card in your own name in the early seventies. Um, you know, they're that like, many, many, many other injustices. Like they're just not aware of it. And I don't know, it wasn't that long ago. So if, I would love to be able to sort of like spread that knowledge more widely. And even though, of course, we have a very long way to go, um, especially in terms of, you know, intersectionality, that like there are still some of these feminist battles of the 60s and 70s that are that we're benefiting from right now. And I would love that to be more widely known. I would like to take a hard left turn because I would like to ambush you with a question because I'm very professional. Um, I do my research on all authors, and you're active on Twitter. And I saw something that I felt it, it does have to do with feminism, with equal rights, and all of those things. So I just wanted to ask you, is Daniel Snyder, the owner of the Washington Commanders, the worst owner in professional sports? <laughs> Honestly, I don't know anything about sports. <laughs> I just, um, I just sort of like dip in and out for the headlines. When there's stuff about labor, that's like actually what I'm like very interested in. Those are the, the headlines I tend to go for the most. I don't even remember that tweet. <laughs> it wasn't too long ago. Um, he's terrible. At the, at the risk of mansplaining, you said you don't know about sports. He's awful. Ooh. He's absolutely terrible. I live outside of D.C., so I know. Now, originally you're from Philadelphia, right? 
That's right. Yeah. All right. So that's Eagles country. I grew up in New York, so I'm automatically a New York Giants fan. Always have been, even when they're absolutely horrible like right now. So it's very easy to hate um, that sports franchise, but he is the worst. It's not a hot take. A lot of people agree with me. In fact, Commanders fans usually agree with me, too. Your tweet on it, you've, you made a very strong stance, and it was absolutely the right stance. So I think you you are in good company there. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I could go on my rant about, uh, you know, um, professional sports in general and sexism and racism and CTE and labor and all sorts of things. And I don't think I have to know anything about sports to continue to rant on those subjects. <laughs> but uh, maybe we'll save that for another podcast. Yeah, no, we'll set up episode two and we'll we'll break that up. We'll get ready for that. All right. So last question I'd like to ask. History Nerd United was founded because a lot of people shy away from reading history. They remember it from school where it was boring and you learned about the American Revolution every year for 10 years straight. If one of those people was in front of you and said, I don't like history, why should I read The Great Stewardess Rebellion? What would you say to them? Two things. One is that the events of that book are having an impact on your life right now, whether you know it or not. Um, And two is that this book is, I mean, it's funny. Like there are, like when we talk about, you know, the more frivolous aspects of it, like the ads and the uniforms and the kissing and all these various outrages, like these are not to, not that it's salacious, but like it's juicy. These are things that are like fun to read about. Um, obviously, terrible to go through. I don't want to take anything away from that. But like these ads are incredibly compelling. Like your jaw will drop, and you're hearing the stories of what these women went through and the way that they pushed back, often in really inventive and humorous and dramatic ways. And I would say that the history is good to know (laughs) in general, but even if you just enjoy, you know, reading novels, you will enjoy reading this book because I I do think it in many ways it reads like a novel. I mean, you absolutely kind of pull a -a rope-a-dope because in the beginning it is these somewhat salacious details that even today we kind of be like, holy cow, I can't believe that happened. And then all of a sudden I'm like, oh, I'm reading about labor law. I'm enjoying this. And then you keep going and there's just, (laughs) without giving a lot away, like, just because these strong women come together doesn't mean that A, everything's going to go smoothly, or B, that it's even going to go smoothly in between them. So there's also a lot of twists and turns that I feel like you don't see coming, which I think people forget about history has these strangest twists and turns when you just write the facts. Well, thank you for saying that. I worked very hard on that, so, so I really appreciate it. It was a pleasure to learn those things and then a pleasure to write about them for sure. Well, Nell, it's a fantastic book. Thank you for coming on to talk about it. Everyone should read it and then watch the miniseries as soon as it comes out. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. And that's it for this episode. Nell, thank you so much. The Great Stewardess Rebellion. It is out, everyone. Go read it. Trust me, you're going to love it. In the meantime, search us out. Read the blog, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, HistoryNerdsUnited.com. Head on over, nerds. Let us know how we're doing. We want to hear from you. In the meantime, be safe out there. Later, nerds. <laughs>